<coughs> right. You're on chapter 18, <coughs> which is the Moksha Sannyas Yoga. That's the name of the chapter, the final chapter of the Gita. And uh, it's about union through, of course, for liberation, but through renunciation. And Arjuna, as many chapters, you know, begins or introduces new concepts and topics through questions. And here his question was, what's the um, difference between renunciation, sannyas, complete renunciation in all forms of outwardly just getting away from it all to thyag, which is kind of a self-surrender. This is how Swamiji writes it every time he puts thyag, he put in little parenthesis, self-surrender, which is a beautiful kind of term to think about. And then Krishna, of course, says, you know, the difference one is of action, as we've been talking about, which is sannyas. And tyag <coughs> is more about the fruits of the action. Now, we can't give up action entirely. We were talking about Sri Yukteswar saying, you know, as long as you breathe the free air of this world, we're obligated to provide grateful service, which is his kind of underhanded, <laughs> cryptic way of saying, well, when you, you know, when you withdraw into the infinite, when you're no longer dependent, which is when the yogi becomes breathless, when there is no transactional relationship with this world, that time we can, in fact, you know, give up all action if we want. Surprisingly, though, most great masters don't give up action. In fact, they get, they're really, really active people. Krishna didn't give up any action. He didn't need to participate in the world. He could have just been under a tree and he could have just been meditating and people could have come up to him and he could have given him the same jnana. He could have, you know, given out the whole Gita sitting under a tree somewhere. But he was right in the middle of it all. Yogananda was, is right, was right in the middle of it all. Swamiji was right in the middle of it all. In fact, the action that they're able to do is, you know, pales in comparison to any action that we've ever put out. Even our most active day, even our, you know, our greatest, oh my goodness, I did that, is kind of a little, <laughs> very tiny little thing compared to what you see they have done over, you know, daily of their lives. And uh, since we can't give up action, since we've not achieved a state which allows us to give up action, you see, we're not, we've not earned the right to give up action. Therefore, renunciation for all of us will come. And it's the safer way anyway, because if we start giving up action, now, of course, it's helpful to give up certain actions that lead to bad habits. And, you know, there are certain renunciations on that level that we can do and should do. But little by little, it's a slippery, slippery slope and we might just start thinking that, oh, you know, everything's just Maya and therefore. So the smarter way for all of us, in fact, the only way available to us is how do we overcome the desire or the attachment to the fruits of our actions? Because actions we're going to need to perform. So that's how we kind of started this chapter. We're on the 12th verse now. And the 12th verse <coughs> says... The fruits of action, for those who are attached to them, are threefold, pleasant, unpleasant, and mixed. They accrue after death in the astral world or in the next incarnation to those who have not renounced them. 
For the self-surrendered, however, they do not accrue to oneself. <clears throat> so let's look at that. There are three different stages of awareness here. First is just the fruits of action. Now, what is karma? Of course, that's what we're talking about here. Karma is just this energy that continues to build even after lifetimes are have finished. Um, so over here, as we said, we can't give up action altogether. So Krishna is focusing on the fruit of the actions. Now, everything is karmic in the sense karma itself means what? Karma only means action. The very name means action. Just by saying action is enough for the universe to know, ki, yeah, if there's an action, there's of course going to be a reaction and so on and so forth. And any action, can you imagine like our actions from millions of lifetimes again uh, before are just still playing out through us. Scientifically, they say no energy can be created or destroyed. It can only transfer from one form to another. Can you imagine that energy we started? say even hundreds of lifetimes ago, I don't know how long, it's still manifesting through us unless we found a way to transform it into something else. Otherwise, it's just going to keep going and going and going and going. Now, because we can't stop action, and I said even a thought is action, our intentions, our actions, our words, our actions, God, it's like uh, scary to think about. So, Krishna is focusing on another aspect of karma that's quite binding, and that is the need or the necessity or the expectation or the energy behind why we would act. We act only and only because, or at least majoritively, because there is going to be a result to our action. And he says the results of fruits of our actions are of threefold, right? There's pleasant <laughs> results to our actions, there's unpleasant results to our actions, and then there is um, mixed. mixed. I, I feel like mix seems to be, in fact, probably the majority. Like both sides are going to be there. I was, we were talking about kind of being <coughs> unwell this week, and it was quite uh, unpleasant on many <laughs> levels, but it was also pleasant to a certain degree. You know, the ashram was quiet, it was closed. Um, we were kind of resting in, in a way that we've not rested for a long time, although. So it was like this unpleasant reality kind of intertwining with a certain pleasantness of, ah, you know, I'm just with myself, I'm with my own thoughts, I'm with the Guru. That kind of space sometimes we just don't get. Narayani and I were joking, just like, wow, we should just get be getting sick more, more often, often sometimes because, you know, that's the only way we can, we ourselves will not otherwise do some at times these things. So you've got this mixed reality and I just feel that probably almost all our actions are all you know, oh, eventually have that mixed quality mm -hmm. to them. And there are certain things that are quite clearly, you know, you've eaten an ice cream, that's very pleasant. You've stubbed your toe, that's highly unpleasant. I don't think you're going to be like, oh, I think this is a mixed feeling over here. But whatever it is, these three kind of potential results to all our actions, depending on how attached we get to them, which means not like, no, none of us are attached to unpleasant, you know, experiences. In fact, we're like, oh, I wish I didn't have, but we're very identified with them. That happened to me and that was so unpleasant. And we want to tell everybody how, you know, I had this horrible day. And there's a story of like, uh, I don't know if it was Swami or Master, but some somebody was telling them a very, you know, hard surgery that they went through and how tough it was and really, you know, just like the most unpleasant experience they had and so, and either Master, master or Swami. Yeah. Master was a Master. It's like, when was this surgery? Like, oh, that was 30 years ago. You know, for, so for 30 years, this person's like, 
identifying with it over and over again even though it's so unpleasant but there's a certain joy yeah. in sharing later on with how unpleasant a situation i went through so that's where that mixed energy returns back to everything so it's that identification that we hold that is why here krishna is really trying to help us understand if you can just let go of the fruits of your actions a huge amount of karma just doesn't have any effect on you if you don't identify i mean you've put out the energy but if you then don't identify with whatever that energy brings that's how we end up neutralizing a lot of karma because a lot of everything we're doing is karmic i mean there's almost nothing where i've had an original thought that's not somewhere or the other part of a flow of energy i've put out you know karma is such that there's three forms of karma as the way that they put it <coughs> you've got sanchit karma which is the sum totality of everything that we've ever done thought any energy that's been put out you've got prarabdh karma which is the karma that's playing out in this life which is a very tiny sliver of sanchit karma and then there is something called like agami karma or something which is like the karma that we're still yet to make by every action every word and every thought that we've not yet done which means my sanchit karma and my prarabdh karma if it's not being neutralized is just creating more karma so we're just adding to this whole flow so it accrues after death means we carry all that with us the identification to these actions to their results to how we felt whether pleasant unpleasant or mixed and we carry them on into both the astral world and into the next incarnation <coughs> for those who have not renounced them you see if you renounce them that's why we often gives this um exercise sometimes you know just at night just throw it all into that fire this swami ji would highly recommend each of us to do is if nothing else you know that attempt to just renounce all the fruits of the actions that the day has brought about for the self surrendered however they do not accrue to oneself and this is an interesting thing that swami ji brings out here we've talked about this before is the masters right these jivan muktas the self realized masters do they not create karma is a first question and on the surface if somebody were to ask me that i would say oh no they don't create any karma but in fact the truth is they don't accrue any karma which is different because any action in this universe is going to create a reaction which is doesn't it can't be like uh, you know a great master is here and what he's doing is creating no ripples in the universe what it's not doing is not creating any ripples in his consciousness since there is no sense of i there's no ego there's nothing for that karma to attach itself to now here's the good news for all of us disciples and this is another very key ingredient of what the guru's kind of you can say responsibility for us is and his gift to us is all the karma that the great masters create which in their cases you can assume is all good because it's always in perfect kind of harmony and alignment with the universal laws all those benefits are accrued to the disciples can you imagine isn't that just amazing because they do create karma every action but they just don't accrue any none of that will ever stick to them they will not carry it from lifetime because of that complete freedom that they have even while they're performing it they're not even performing it they just know god's doing this through them they're not attached at all to the results in any way even though it may seem that they're very passionate about what they're doing which they are but boom once it's done it's done they just feel god 
doing it through them and everything all those benefits can you imagine just come on to each of us and that's why it's such a great thing for us to be able to serve the work mm-hmm. in whatever way you can because that helps that's what they've put out you know that's the energy they've put out say if we get in alignment with that energy everything that that has generated if we identify that's the key here if i identify with yogananda as my guru then i am able to receive that if i identify my energy with the work that he's done then i receive the benefits of all the work that he's done as well was yogananda i mean he said once no i have accumulated <coughs> lots of good karma that i want to give to all my disciples yeah, something like that so. mm. <clears throat> 13th verse oh mighty armed arjuna hear from me now the five causes of all action and its accomplishment as chronicled in the supreme shankhya wisdom and the means of eradicating the last vestiges of karma so now krishna goes into what are the five causes of all action the five causes of all action of right action as well as wrong performed by man in body speech and thought are as follows so again he's saying action means physical verbal mental anything it doesn't mean just this outward action we have to always remember anytime action is being said don't think of it <clears throat> purely from the perspective of you know physically doing something a thought is an action an intention is an action an attitude is an action so first these are the five causes the human body itself as the seat of the action the causative agent second of action which is the ego or the jivatma third the various instruments of actions which are the senses the mind and the intellect fourth the various kinds of action which is the power of speech our hands our legs our excretory system our reproductive system and five destiny which is the influence exerted by past karmas or action which we have been talking about that sanchit and prarabdh karma and is the presiding deity of all action i'm going to read the 16th and then go back here which says considering how many factors are influential in human action anyone lacking this awareness who thinks of his ego <clears throat> as the sole doer of everything accomplished by him shows no understanding at all now all of us think we're doing this we're doing what we want we're doing it how we want this is my life i'm making the decisions i'm making these choices so on and so forth but krishna says there are five different causes of which the ego is just one that's acting upon all actions that's creating and um directing and coloring our actions fifth which is the greatest which we just talked about is karma itself <clears throat> everything we're doing there's the presiding deity which is an again very i don't know what the right word is but i think it makes the whole thing so impersonal because otherwise it's just like i'm doing this and i have to do that it's just like how much of the energy of how many eyes are we bringing in with us i mean how many eyes have we had each eye is so convinced that i'm doing it and i'm doing it and then the next time i'm doing it and then the next lifetime i'm doing it 
that once we come to this awareness, it should help us just say, wait a minute, who is this I anyway? Because if I'm carrying so much karma with me from so many eyes, every one of them just identified and convinced with that karma, you know, it's just like maybe it's time for me to <laughs> relax a little bit from getting so identified. So karma as a whole, you know, that we know, that's a, there's a flow and we need to use that flow as a source of disengaging ourselves a little bit and just realizing, oh, this is happening through me because it's an energy I've put into motion in the past and boom, now I have to, now this energy has to <coughs> see itself through to its natural conclusion. Now my hope is that I don't create more in the process and I try to allow that energy, find that energy to its natural conclusion. How? By at the very least, not getting too caught up with the results of that action. Because that's the carrot at the end of every stick. I hope this will make me happy. I hope this will help me avoid suffering. I hope this makes me look good. I hope, you know, I get better than the other person over there by doing this, so on and so forth. Let's come back to the first now, the human body. You know, we're born with a body that's just big, small, fat, thin, you know, pretty, ugly, whatever we want to call it, whatever labels we may have created around it. But so much of what we can do and can't do is determined by our body. I mean, this whole week, you know, maybe we wanted to do many things. We wanted to do all our programs and we just couldn't. The human body, our bodies just won't allow it. Now, we may think like, oh, I have these hopes and dreams, but if the body doesn't cooperate with it when it's unwell, when you're tired and you still want to, your mind may say, let's go and do something else. But the body says, no, 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 I'm not moving at all. People who are born blind, people who are born short, they may want to play basketball, but they're not going to probably do <coughs> as well as those people who are taller. So you first have to realize like, wait a minute, my body's come to me in a very particular form. Now, what the point of all of this is to be aware not just ki, vaguely that yeah, the body plays a role because we, we know the body plays a role but to be aware of what role is my body playing? What kind of a body do I have? Now, most of us are so obsessed with our body. Every decision we make is either to feed the body, to sustain the body, to make it look good, to hope that it doesn't age as well. You know, I mean, it's just like the body makes so much of the decisions for us. Now, we think we're making these decisions but it's because of the identification to the body. Swamiji makes an interesting comment in the book in which he says, every seven years, every cell in our body completely changes. So the body that you're so identified with in seven years, you're not even, that body is not even existing anymore. Every part of it has become completely new or new in the sense, different. So which body are you? so obsessed and identified with in the first place but to recognize my body plays a very vital role in how actions are being expressed whether of thought of speech or of body itself and then start tuning into what my body is what it can do can't do what i have allowed it to do or how deeply identified i am with it unless i identify with it the more i'll be able to do through it because then certain limitations of the body no longer abide. Then you've got the ego itself. That's easy, right? The, the one I inside. Now, this is not... Now, Swami says ego or jivatma. He's actually talking about a very a subtler form of the ego, not just the generic I, but this, this 
inside us there's a part of us that just knows that it's inside us you know it's like this really subtle form of identification which is essentially the soul identified with this external reality when the soul gets identified with the external reality it starts to express itself through the external reality through the very kind of you can say limited window of this external reality so that part we know because that's the part we usually blame for everything it's like oh you know in the spiritual jargon it was just oh it's the ego oh, that guy has so much ego oh, my ego you know it's like my ego already is like a weird kind of term to say because my is also egoic and ego is also because there is no my here there is only this one reality that's expressing through us then you've got the instruments of action which are the senses the mind and the intellect now a lot of it plays on our senses and the mind and the intellect the way you perceive this world how you think about somebody is now going to greatly determine the way you act if i decide i don't like somebody boom that's it doesn't matter how nice that person is doesn't matter how competent that person is if i'm the boss and i've decided i don't like this employee of mine that's it i'm going to always in some fashion or the other act in a way that will undermine that person and look at our senses sometimes you hear something sometimes you kind of see something and that's it and it you don't know if it's true or not you know if i hear a good friend of mine kind of behind my back saying something about me Yeah, from then on my senses have drawn in something i don't know the context of it maybe they were not saying anything bad in the first place i mean how easily fooled we are is what i'm saying how easily kind of confused we are by the information that we receive and then all our actions are determined by our senses by that mind and by that intellect again just being really aware of this fact that everything we think we're basing our decisions on they're not based on reality at all we don't even know they're just our own inferences of our own perceptions which makes it really you know takes truth makes it first steps it down into our perception steps it down into our inference of that perception and then we act accordingly so here's truth and here's our action and there's usually a huge difference between the two and then finally is the power of you know the power our ability to talk our ability to move our ability to act outwardly our ability to reproduce how much of our decisions throughout human history has been made by the ability to reproduce kings and wars have been fought over heirs and you know my children and how many of them am i going to have and so on and so forth those actions those very key realities determine so much of what we do we don't even realize it we just think you know i'm coming up with these thoughts these are my ideas and this is how i want and we're just being driven by really the most basest the you know the most mundane of realities just by our ability to reproduce our ability to walk around our ability to speak narayani wrongly believes that she doesn't speak english very well and then a lot of her actions are created because of that this is how i speak and then she's made up whatever version of herself and that's now all those actions i mean is like go figure you know how that works true and um, none very of true. us 
none of us think about it and what Krishna is trying us to say and this is where we come into the 16th verse again considering how many factors are influential in human action anyone lacking this awareness who thinks of his ego <coughs> excuse me <coughs> as the sole doer of everything accomplished by him shows no understanding at all now why this is helpful because i'm not going to be sitting and saying okay is how much of my body is involved in this action and how much of my ego is involved how much of my senses i mean this is not like some sort of mental process we need to work what it shows is we're not who we think we are you know we're just made up of many things we're more like a football team if you want to use a sports analogy and, and there's like lots of players involved you know we may think of you know, when we think of a team we think there is some coherent one version of just all really really working together but none of us are working together our body oftentimes works in complete tandem from you know how our mind is our senses completely take us for a ride sometimes i mean how much of what we eat coming back to my greatest example is determined i mean you know it's like sometimes you just say i don't like how things look and i don't want to eat it because visually that's it that's what the sense has taken in and then now your mind is inferring whatever it's inferring swami gives an interesting example of a coming talking about food again <coughs> of a party where the lighting was such that you know it was like kind of green lighting <coughs> and that green light was falling on the food in a way that <coughs> made it look like the food's a little off mm-hmm. no and everybody who ate over there even the food was perfectly fine majority of people felt sick why because somewhere in there from the visual understanding of you know the sense they started t- tuning in and there was some part of their brain that says you know this doesn't look so good <laughs> they were eating it nonetheless because it tasted yummy but because of that little kind of understanding that was going in through their visual aid they felt sick and that's how powerful that decision right there for them would be and none of them would have even been conscious of it so let's move on to the 17th verse he who is above the hypnosis of ego motivation and whose understanding is clear because it's undistorted <coughs> by false perception he is not the slayer on the battlefield of kurukshetra and commits no sin in the slaying we come back here essentially to the first dilemma of arjuna's which was how can i kill people i mean arjuna's on the battlefield you know he knows he's going to fight of course he's his biggest thing is how can i kill my own loved ones but then he was just like isn't killing bad and should i just not just let this go isn't peace really the solution here and he's just trying to find a way out of this dilemma that he has and uh, very rightly so of course esoterically we talked about and the whole gita really is based on that is the war is our own you know consciousness and you know we've got the upward moving energies the downward the uplifting qualities the <coughs> more kind of binding qualities and the wars happening between them and most of us don't want to kill a lot of our lower qualities you know i don't know i want to still be upset when i want to and i want to be lazy when i want to yeah i want to do these great things but i don't want to kind of you know have to give up my favorite tv show and i don't want to have to give up the you know the amount of sugar that i enjoy eating and so on and so forth you know we've got this hope that we'll just 
enter into God's kind of infinite bliss just as we are all our all with all our bags and baggages we won't have to let anything go chalo let's just enter into God but that's not going to happen and therefore Krishna of course says you have to fight but on another level the act of killing is probably the most you can say mm, horrendous of acts maybe I don't know if that's you know, entirely true but in most cases, we'd never want to take a life. And so Krishna is using an <coughs> example of such an extreme form, no? Um, that says, if you are able to break away from the hypnosis of ego motivation, of these all these identities that we've just talked about, these five causes that are intertwined into everything that we do, if we're able to break away from that and our understanding gets really clear, but what is our understanding? God's the doer. I mean, there is only one reality here. Uh, other than Brahman, nothing else exists. Which is why Krishna really started this whole conversation with Arjuna. Is because Arjuna was so confused. Thinking, all oh, this world and this battle, it's so real and it's so important. And how can I do all these things? And once you're able to, and this is not mental. You can't go around hurting somebody and saying, I didn't do it. God did it through me. You know, you can't be like, uh, you can try that, but karma fortunately knows who is who and it will make its work happen. Even if you can confuse and distort truth for other people, karma is going to get to you. So whatever you want to make of it, it has to be truth. And then what happens is when you realize that, then you are no longer the slayer on the battlefield of Kurukshetra and you commit no sin in the slaying. What does that mean? It means sin here, of course, is karma. That's what we commit in anything. <coughs> karma continues. And then we have to kind of face the consequences of whatever actions, good, bad, ugly, pleasant, unpleasant, mixed. And when we realize that we're not the doer, that there is no ego identity, behind the actions which comes from being able to overcome the desire for the fruits of our actions then no matter what you do and of course this isn't reason for us to do anything out of out of dharma which hopefully at that stage if you've been able to get to that stage there'll never be something out of dharma because if god's flowing through you and you become so clear about it it's just really hard but you know god kills doesn't he? I mean, people are dying all around us, all the time. Krishna killed. Ram killed. I mean, you know, <laughs> Yogananda as William the Conqueror killed. So, sometimes we may think of this whole act of death and dying in this process, you know, scary. But God has his instruments too. Right now, he's using a whole host of instruments to bring about deaths that none of us would ideally want to see happen but they're happening nonetheless but there is no sin committed in this process when that instrument is in perfect harmony with God and of course here Krishna is using this extreme example trying to tie it into the first question of Arjuna's but we're really talking about for most of us we're talking about everything that we do and anything that we do. No more will there be karma associated with our actions. 
knowing, knower, known, these three together constitute the impulse to action, which is the doer, awareness of the deed, and the deed itself. So now Krishna is breaking up the entire flow of action itself. First he talked about their five causes. But beyond that there is also these three more additional realities to action. Knowing, knower, known. We hear about this in meditation, right? Knowing, knower, known become one in meditation. The meditator, the act of meditation, and the object of our meditation. When you realize that these three are the same, then there is nothing happening. <laughs> I mean, if you say, I have to <laughs> climb this mountain, and if you realize I am the mountain and I am the act of climbing, doesn't mean that you don't climb anymore. It's just like you'll never fatigue ever again. Nothing you want to do. If you want to succeed at something, you say, oh, I am the success that I'm seeking and I'm the very act of achieving that success. Boom. Nothing that you want to do is kind of away from your ability to do it. If you learn how to combine and unite these three realities, knowing, knower, known, or as he says over here, the doer, the awareness of the deed and the deed itself. And this is what we're trying to achieve. This is the unity that we're trying to achieve on a little level in our meditations. If in my meditation I can get to that space where the object of my meditation is the breath, right? When we start, if I can get so into my breath where I can't tell what's the breath and what am I and what is the act of breathing, that's that kind of little reflection of what we're trying to do in everything in this world. Can you imagine this is how the masters function? I mean, they're already in, you know, they're already inside you. They're, they're acting through you. They're in the floor, they're in the stars, they're in every person's thoughts. I mean, it's just a weird <laughs> mental picture to be able to, yet you see them functioning just fine and going about their lives and you know, pretending that they have to do all these things when they're absolutely everything. If they wanted to, they could do anything they wanted. Fortunately, at that stage, the concept of want and like and dislike just doesn't come in. So they're only doing that which they're able to tune into as divine will, which is another reality, a little hard for us to understand and comprehend divine will. Because we can only see things as good and bad. How can God want people to get hurt? You know, so in our mind, that's bad. That's an unpleasant reality. But in God's mind, it's just his love. In the mind of the great saints, it's just like, what hurt? I'm everybody. God's in everybody who is so-called getting hurt. And so, again and again, these are realities so far beyond our intellectual understanding. And that's why... In everything that we do with the Gita, we just have to bring it down to our own little reality. And from here, it's just like, how is my meditation going, if nothing else? You know, how much of the little experience can I actually build here? Can I get to a point where knowing no or known has some sense of unity? Or am I just hoping that one day I'm just going to, you know, kind of snap into bliss? One day I'm going to suddenly be able to give up all my expectations. One day I'm going to suddenly be able to love everyone. You know? So we've got to realize that these high states, and sometimes these high states are 
just not helpful to know too much about because then you compare yourself and you're like, oh, where is he and where am I and what does he expect of me and what am I able to do? But really, these Krishna expects us to do just very little. If in your meditation you can experience or you can try to create and experience at least somewhat of this, it's huge. It's a huge step forward and that's where grace comes in. And that's why God's presence is such an important reality, which isn't that you just have to kind of slog your way towards the very end of just giving up everything and sabko chodo, I know, even the fruits you have to give, even the actions you have to give, every thought you have to be calculative about, oh, kya karma banne wala, you know, it's, it's none of that. These are just the laws, the machinery of perpetuity that allows everything to function in a way that you were not bumping into each other all the time even though it feels that we are but we've just got to pick up this few simple things that are clear that are practical for us to be able to do and here is just this can i be am i able to withdraw a little bit from the fruits of my actions am i able to create some little experience in my meditation and am i clear enough of the experience i'm trying to have and here, which Krishna is saying of knower, knowing and known, kind of uniting into this one reality. The more separate they are, the more different they are, the knower, the knowing and the known, the doer and the deed and the act, the more then the sway of karma and of all its ramifications are going to kind of participate in our lives more and more. Anyway, that's where I'm going to <laughs> stop. <laughs> See if Narayani picked up on any thought that she'll share with us. Well, there were several, but one of the things that happens when we get a bit under the weather or something happens with our physical body is that we are forced to slow down. <laughs> and when we slow down, a different awareness comes up. We become more aware awareness and our ability to see and our actions somehow improve in the sense that we don't get so caught up in the action itself because there is a detachment that comes with sharper awareness. And one of the things that I have enjoyed this week has been that, because since there was nothing really that I could physically get involved with, um, I realized that my actions, even though they were mental, there was at a thought level or, you know, whatever little thing I moved through my body was much more deliberate was much more was much more refined. I was paying attention to many other elements that otherwise I wouldn't have paid attention. So what I was thinking, when we introduce so many eyes in the process, we focus only in us and the action itself. And and we forget about so many other elements that we can introduce into that activity in order to forget about ourselves. 
and I was thinking that, of course, we all know about chanting. I mean, just like a, it's a given. We all have spoken about it. But really, the more we introduce a chant, a mantra, a japa, <laughs> while performing that action, the more the I will get personally involved in that action because your mind will be vibrating at a different level and the expectation of the fruit of that action will be much less because you will be loving what you are doing. And when we love what we do, there is very little expectation because we just do it because we love it. And that love is infused in that action. Therefore, the motivation behind each action is motivated by love. So whether the action will be successful or not in our eyes, eventually what will come back to us will be the same kind of love that we have put into motion. So I would say for this week, perhaps we want to focus more on slowing down all our activities and in all the responsibilities that we have to perform. <coughs> yes, give it its own attention, but do it slower. Allow your awareness become sharper. Allow yourself to pay attention to so many other details that are part of that action. Perhaps there are people involved that you also need to pay attention. Perhaps you need to introduce a chant while performing that action. Perhaps you need to really love that action. And, and the more we start introducing elements that will uplift every action, the probability of creating karma will be much less. And that's the beauty of the masters. They come here because they love us. And their service to us, their service to humanity is motivated only by love. They love to serve God and they are aware about so many other things. So I would say uh, this week awareness could be a key ingredient to start developing and to also remove that sense of I and that personal entanglement with that activity, introduce other elements and make sure that whatever you are doing, whether it's cooking, whether it's writing an email, whether it's giving a lecture, <laughs> whether it's doing anything, there is love added 
to that action because that love would be really the energy that will make of that activity a success or not. Lovely.